Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Well, hello. I am very excited to be here today because, as some of you know, I'm trying to make my way back from knee replacement surgery. And I've been wandering on twisted roads like a little lost hobbit in Middle Earth. <laughs> but, but I have made my way back here today, and I hope I get to stay. I don't want to, I don't know, I don't do well with idleness, I guess. So, and it's great that we're back doing this particular episode of The Scramble, and I'm especially excited because really, and I'm not making this up, two of my absolute favorite journalism writers uh, are on the show today. Uh, a little, little bit later, because uh, we are relentless in our dogged coverage of professional contract contract bridge, you know, like any journalistic entity would be. Uh, David Owen, a staff writer for The New Yorker, is going to explain <laughs> how bridge turned into a moral cesspool. Moral cesspool will kind of be the theme of the day. And by the way, in the final uh, segment of the show today, I'm going to try to take some calls, and we're going to circle back from the conversation I'm about to have. We're going to circle back to a conversation about what is now being called cancel culture, that idea that you get rid of the work of artists, creators, whom you now regard as morally objectionable. Uh, joining us right now is one of those other two favorite writers. Uh, it's such a pleasure to read almost anything he writes. Uh, I don't even know why I qualified it with the word almost. Hank Stuver, a reporter who has been twice named a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in f- feature writing and is the TV critic for the Washington Post and the author of Off Ramp, an essay collection, which you should order immediately after the show ends. Um, so, um, Hank Stuver, we are here to talk, obviously, uh, about the Michael Jackson documentary. I get uh, leaving no, no Land. That might not even be the right way to describe it, right? It's not a Michael Jackson documentary. It's a documentary about two men who are describing their situation as survivors of Michael Jackson. That's correct. Um, Leaving Neverland is a uh, full-blown Michael Jackson scandal with very little Michael Jackson in it, um, because one, Michael Jackson is dead, and two, um, this documentary is intentionally about the stories that these men have finally um, decided that they need to tell. Uh, Both men, as boys, spent time with a lot of time with Michael Jackson as his special little friend, and um, some of many. Uh, But they say they are contradicting themselves. After years of saying that nothing sexual ever happened with Michael Jackson, they have both come out with a whole lot of details about uh, sex with Michael Jackson when they were boys. And it is gripping, and it is strange, and it is awful, and it is unlike anything I've ever had to review as TV critic, um, partly because of the context, as you mentioned earlier, that we are in, in a new era of listening to people in an extrajudicial environment, um, listening to victims who did not avail themselves of the opportunity or never were heard in court. Um, so 
here we are. Right. So here we are. There's some real differences. We should also say HBO dropped the first two hours of this last night. The next two hours are dropped tonight. It is. Um, you can watch them on demand, actually, oh. if you're in a hurry. Um, I actually think that it's nice that they give you two nights to process. Um, the second part of the documentary that airs tonight mm. is much more about how come, why not, especially about um, their parents and their families. Why did you let your child hang out with Michael Jackson that much? Um, what happened when you, these men finally came out and told their wives and their parents and their siblings that, yes, the, the, the rumors were true all along and these things happened. And what do you do with that now? Right. I, I think you do need time to recover. I, I find the first two hours very, in all the ways that you're suggesting, very claustrophobic. I mean, you can't get away from the details that are being thrown at you. I would argue my reaction to so many things these days, Hank, is that they're too long. I really thought that the two hours that I went through last night, probably a half hour could have been cut out of it. I I agree a little bit. I do think, though, that um, you know they could have made this a two-hour documentary in one night. I think it would have come at you too fast and furious that way. I like its pace. Mm-hmm. I like its deliberate, unflinching... Uh, there's not a lot of quick cuts in those interviews. There's a lot of terrible pauses, um, at which point, you know, you're, you are hurting as much as they are when they're when – the, but they're very direct. They're, it's, there's not a lot of tears in it. There's not a lot of no. – uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just such a calm, direct telling of what happened from both men. Right. Not only are there not a lot of tears, but in the case of the two mothers uh, and one grandmother – their, their faces are usually kind of bathed in these kind of halcyon smiles as they recall, you know, what, what a wonderful time they had. And I find myself struggling against that a little bit, too. It's kind of like, well, you know, I, you know I, I, as you'll see tonight, these families um, are, you know, in the case of Wade Robson, he's been he's been telling what happened to him since about 2013. I think that enough time has gone by, actually, that the families are able to compartmentalize the good times then followed by the bad time. Mm. And both mothers speak very directly about all that good time we thought we were having was actually a bad time, and I'm still dealing with that. Right. You know? Although, you know, it is, even though they do that, I mean, fairly early on, we deal in the case of, of uh, Wade Robson uh, with the fact that his family is visiting America from Australia for, I think, the first time. He's seven years old. His family makes the decision to go to the Grand Canyon uh, for a week and leave their seven-year-old son alone with Michael Jackson, whom they really don't even know. They rewrote their entire two- or three-week vacation to America because they were so enchanted by Michael Jackson. Look, this film is a fantastic study. Agree or disagree or feel that Michael's not getting a fair shake or, or that you don't quite believe these men. Nevertheless, whatever this film is, it is a fascinating study in kind of the gullibility we have around celebrities. Right. It, you know, it, it is that, Hank, without... I don't know. There was another way to make this movie. So we talked about could be, could it be shorter? It could also be like Ezra Edelman longer, right? It could have been an eight-hour right. Michael Jackson made in America, right? And, and right. then it could be about our our relationship with pop stars, right? Over a sixty-year period. And yeah. there's a part of me that wants that, you know, that uh-huh. yes, with the real tight focus that they're showing doing right now, just staying right on these guys and their and their mothers. You know, yes, you can extract from that that when somebody is that 
famous, I mean, just beyond famous and, and rich and powerful and able to grant any wish. He's almost a genie. You want it, you got it. That we're just not, we're, maybe people just don't have the wiring to resist that. But there's a way in which I would have liked to see the Ezra Edelman larger take. Like, is this sui generis or, or is this just kind of the way we are these days? Well, or the way we were then. I mean, I think that there's a lot of then um, in the first half, you know, and I was reminded when I watched, I watched it twice to review it, and then I watched it again last night at home uh, with my partner who has not seen it, and he was, he was far more skeptical of it than I was. Um, he was like, gosh, it's really one-sided, and I'm like, well, it's intended to be one-sided. It's, it's, it's intended. What, what other side are you possibly going to get? Um, but anyway, I, I, what you're saying about, I, I, I was looking at all those little kids dancing on stage mm-hmm. um, in, in those, that old kind of grainy video footage of Michael Jackson concerts, and not just Wade and then, and then James, but also just the everyday kids who, all those, all those little 80s babies who, um, you know, even now I've had people tell me, when I play Michael Jackson, my kid is just enchanted. Mm-hmm. And there's still, there's still a spell there, but it, 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 it gave me a lot of... Um, Feelings of you know we did not have access to celebrities the way we do now. We didn't we couldn't follow them on Twitter. Um, they also did not have access to us in terms of social media the way they do now. And so really to have one show up in your life was an even bigger deal in 1987 than it would have been now. Right, I and, think. and and to have it be Michael Jackson, there's almost no measuring stick we can use. I mean, there's right, and we taught ourselves to become celebrities and brand ourselves. And I don't know. I think that the, I think that it was even more of a gravitational pull 35 years ago than than we think. The you know you said well what else could they show? Well, I mean, for example, and I'm no expert on all this stuff, but just even doing a little outside reading today, it, it appears that in 2009, the entire Robson family, all those Robsons we see, in you know, wanted to go to the memorial service, submitted a guest list, you know, uh-huh. asked about parking. Um, uh-huh. Issued a statement about how much they loved him. Yeah. It's all in the documentary. Oh, it's it is maybe part some, two. Yeah, maybe it's part two, yeah. It's in part two, so is the trial. Yeah. You know, Michael Jackson was fully acquitted of sexual molestation charges. Mm-hmm. Um, in a trial that, in which he should have been acquitted. I, I covered it. Um, I was in Santa Maria, California, in the courtroom. Um, <laughs> it was a badly prosecuted case with wobbly evidence and a, um, uh, inconsistent witnesses. And, you know, beyond, beyond reasonable doubt, no, you could not convict him in that case. It might have been the right idea, but it was the wrong, it was all the wrong evidence. I'm just going to play a little clip. I think this might actually be the trailer, the only thing we have, but just so people get a little sense of the the sound of this documentary, which is a very, for the most part, quiet documentary. I was seven years old. Michael asked, do you and the family want to come to Neverland? We drive in and forget about all your problems. You were in Neverland. It was a fantasy. The days were filled with magical childhood adventure experiences. Playing tag, watching movies, eating junk food, anything you could ever want as a child. It's like hanging out with a friend that's more your age. Just kid things. They were just doing kid things. He just came across as a loving, caring, kind soul. It was easy to believe that he was just that. Out of a storybook, right? 
Not a fairy tale. Hello, Wade. Today is your birthday. So congratulations. I love you. Goodbye. So, Hank, let's talk about what we do with all this. I mean, I, I think if you watch this documentary and and uh, your sounds like your partner, you know, parked a little bit of, of skepticism off to the side here. But if you watch this documentary and and are willing to accept it on, on its terms, I mean, the the description is so vivid uh, and and the, the the stories dovetail so significantly. It it is there's a certain point for most of us where you can almost feel the snap of any resistance that you had just snapping like a twig, and it's like oh. Oh, God, there's just no way out of this, right? And one thing about part two is that both Wade and James uh, get married uh, to women who are who who appear to be in their interviews very in touch with emotions and empathy and seem to be just the kind of spouse, um, someone who has abuse in their history, would benefit from because they they were incredibly patient with with their husbands and asked asked all along did something really happen with Michael Jackson well you know no no nothing ever happened and they, they accepted that answer but they also saw their husbands start to come apart um, depression uh, anxiety uh, job loss uh, you know and then they had children and fatherhood seemed to bring joy but also a whole lot of pain. And so finally, you know, Wade comes out to his family and says, it, it, did, it did happen, and it happened this way, and it happened here, and it happened here, and it happened here. And then Wade goes public, and then James finds Wade, and their stories are similar. But I'm really impressed with how their spouses stood by them and helped them open up. So now we are in a place where the ground has shifted probably in a way that's pretty similar to the way that it was for those families once James and Wade did what they did once they you know so but now we're all that family i mean to whatever relationship we have with michael jackson unless we are you know part of just an uh feverish resistance, of which right. there is you'd one. In, you'd be in a pretty good place right now if you had really never liked Thriller or Bad <laughs> or any of the later Michael Jackson output off the wall. Um, I, you know, I think that when people watch this film, I do think that they will re-examine just how much Michael Jackson they need to listen to for the rest of their lives um, or for now. Um, I know that I was getting ready the morning after I finished watching part two and and Thriller came on and I had just filed you know this long review and I had the 80s station on the cable TV and Thriller came on and I was just like, you know, I just, no, I just really, no thanks right now. Um, I don't know if that's a permanent reaction. It's music that I like. Um, I think people are going to have to make that decision themselves. I have to say, though, that in the past, I have been like, yes, you can. If you, if you really enjoy Woody Allen movies or if you really enjoyed Louis C.K.'s show, if, you're, if you still need Cosby show reruns for some reason, what you watch is, is your business, and you don't have to explain it. If it's, if it's that beloved to you, and but I also understand people on the other end of the spectrum who are like, nope, uh, cancel culture. You know, uh, you're canceled. You're just you're just written out of it. There's, I think it's a personal decision. I think it's a, I think it's an inviolably personal decision. Well, I, I think it's a personal decision and a collective one. I mean, let's let's on the collective end, let's be honest. Anybody, any DJ who does bar mitzvah parties, parties and weddings and stuff is purging all the Michael Jackson 
from probably his or her well, until until you can like sniff the culture and 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 yeah. sort of get, feel feel which way the wind is blowing. I would I would think so. In fact, I you know. I mean, well, we did this with the Cosby Show. Right. Um, they took off all the reruns, and then you know, just slowly but surely, one a.m., two a.m. on Centric, maybe or TV One, or I forget where, but you know, there they were. But I think we don't collectively watch the Cosby Show. But one thing that we do is we get out on the dance floor. You know, we get out on the dance floor oh, yeah. at a party or something like that. Well, and as I've been saying, you cannot grocery shop in the United States of America without having the entire '80s right. hit parade play for you while you while you do that. So, and it often involves Billie Jean and Beat It and Thriller and Bad. And so, yeah. I mean, you know, maybe maybe people are revising playlists as we speak. I mean, know? in fact, having watched Keenan Thompson play a, a DJ at, uh, on Saturday Night Live this week, and I'm thinking there's a really great skit there where there's some wedding DJ, and every song he plays, like the whole dance floor whirls at him because it's an R. Kelly song yeah. or because it's a Michael Jackson song. You know, yeah. If, yeah. <laughs> um, right, if they touch it. Um, because, you know, sometimes we don't get to make the decision that mm-hmm. we're not going to. I mean, we can make it on our own playlists and in our own accounts, but sometimes shows are taken away from us and music is taken away from us. I think this is a very different case just for the fact that it is music and not film or TV. Right. And I also think back to it being, so I think it's a collective choice in the sense that there, there's there's situations where communally we enjoy something. Um, but there's also, as you say, a personal choice. I was sort of thinking about what's on my phone. I've got a lot of off the wall on my phone right now. And I feel like I'm capable of listening to Burn This Disco Down you know, and, and also saying, well, the other part of this is he apparently just did horrible things when he wasn't producing music like this. But I think I, I feel like I can split those two things well, up. I think one reason we'll always have this question is that he's no longer here. Right. Um, there is a giant piece of this puzzle missing, which is who was he really? Um and and that's just too hard to peel back because uh, as we're seeing even now, the Jackson family's approach is either um, lawsuit or fingers in the ears, la la la. You know, while HBO is airing this, they're releasing two rare concerts, which are exactly as long as part one and part two, that fans can go watch online instead of watching this. And they're suing HBO. And you know, I mean. <laughs> And part of me, the journalist part of me is like, or, or, what about this, Jacksons? Why don't you tell us about Michael? Why don't you tell us more about Michael that, that you want us to know that, you know, I mean, like, just give us something else besides obfuscation, you know? Right. Well, I think also there's a there are other iterations to come. I guess the playwright uh, Lynn Nottage is working on a, uh, a what would have been a Broadway show about Michael Jackson. What could be in that? I mean, I feel like this documentary is you know if Henrik Ibsen had decided to make a documentary about Michael Jackson uh, and these allegations, you'd kind of get this. But I don't feel like that's the last thing I want to watch. You know, I, I really right. do want a more expansive. Uh, complex treatment, not because I need little Michael Jackson goodies in my trick-or-treat bag, nothing like that, but I just want to see this in a larger social context instead of these two incredibly compressed families. Does that make any sense? It does, and I think maybe, um, as as Dan Reed, the filmmaker, has said, you know, maybe this is the this is the first of of, of many, and maybe there's more to learn after this in in the aftermath of this. Maybe there are more stories coming. Maybe there's more to learn about Michael. Um, 
but this is the film we have. You know, I'm always, I'm, when I, as a critic, I'm always like, well, I wish it was this, but I'm going to review what, what I have and what it's trying to be. <laughs> right. Well, that's the burden that you bear. Well, let me just ask you, ask you I mean, I could just sit here and grump about it. Um, so I assume another takeaway here, and you kind of hinted at this earlier, is this maybe is also... A, a moment of twilight that's being chronicled here, tw- the kind of twilight that would involve that level of trust. I mean, I think at this point, you know, there, there's a similar scenario. It would be difficult for it to un- unfold. Not that we're any less bedazzled by celebrities, but there's just seem to be an awful lot of warning flags up these days. You mean as far as like a celebrity who would want to be around children all the time and be able to separate parents and children and you mean like at that level? Yeah, kind of. Well, <laughs> I would say sure, you absolutely not. And, and people are so much smarter and, and wiser about their the care of their children. And, uh, you know, I would say maybe. I'd yeah. say maybe. I'd say it depends on the celebrity and it right. depends on the parents. Right. So, uh, well, we'll stop there. But uh, great writing as usual, Hank Stuver, and great to talk to you, too. Well, thank you so much for having me. All right. Uh, from The Washington Post, Hank Stuver, uh, author of Off Ramp, an essay collection. We will now take a break. Uh, if you're dying to talk to me about this, you just wait through the next section where we're going to talk about another kind of moral cesspool, another kind of declinism. And then in the final segment, I will take your phone calls. You want to talk about Michael Jackson and cancel culture and, and all that stuff. Uh, I'd love to talk to you. So uh, we're going to move along here to a different topic. But, yes, we will come back at the end of the show to take your calls if you need to talk about what we've just been talking about. Or if you can tie the two topics together, uh, I'll give you some kind of kind of prize. If you can tie together uh, Michael Jackson uh, and uh, the moral compromising of the World Bridge Federation. Um, I will give you a, a prize of some kind. But it can't just be declinism. You're going to have to do better than that. All right. So um, let me just tell you how this uh, topic evolved. Uh, and that is that over the weekend, Betsy Kaplan, uh, senior producer of the show, sent me a link about a top-ranked bridge p- player who'd been suspended after testing positive for two banned substances. Um, and, of course, uh, my immediate reaction is, <laughs> Well, no, actually, that was my immediate reaction. I just laughed. But then I thought, what, kind of, what substances would even be banned in Bridge? But but I also thought, wait a minute. Has Bridge been in all kinds of trouble? Haven't we even maybe even done a segment about this over the last 10 years about like other problems in Bridge? And yes, there are other problems in Bridge. Uh, joining us right now is somebody who knows a lot about them, too. Uh, David Owen, staff writer for The New Yorker and the author of more than a dozen books, including most recently, Where the Water Goes, Life and Death Along the Colorado River. I will say again what I said at the top of the show, one of my favorite magazine writers uh, in America. And so it's exciting to talk uh, to him about anything. Uh, and Bridge, David, is in fact something you actually do seem to know quite a bit about. Hi, Colin. Uh, yeah, I have. Uh, I sort of have two sets of friends. I have people who are I play golf with, and then I have my old lady friends who I play bridge with. So um, I've learned uh, about the bridge world mostly out of contact with them. So let's start with the PEDs, and then we'll sort of get into the the deeper noir aspects of bridge. Uh, But with the 
PEDs, I guess, first of all, the reason that there can be these is that this Bridge Federation is part of the IOC and is governed by their banned substances rules? Right, apparently. I hadn't even realized this. And uh, and so they're randomly tested. And one, really one of the great players of all time, uh, a, uh, uh, a Norwegian player, tested positive for like testosterone or something like a couple of things and, like that and a female fertility drug it was yeah, sort of like his explanation was that he had been take, taking them to uh lose weight and he's a had gotten heavier than he wanted to be partly because he had been in prison for uh tax evasion along with his partner another comp, com, complicated <laughs> it's a complicated story uh it it's not clear that anything that he was taking would have had any positive effect on his bridge playing, but it's a banned substance and, and you know, rules are rules. And so he, uh, he didn't, he hasn't fought it. He, he agreed to it, said the suspension was fair and he's suspended for, for a year from big time play. So uh, for a lot of people who are not paying attention, this might seem like, wow, you know, it's even reached bridge. You know, the, the ways in which you know, are the sports that we love seem compromised. And, you know, the way that Lance Armstrong's story really took off a lot of the air out of uh, it took a lot of the air out of cycling. Um, but really, and, and I base m- most of my opinions on your reporting, <laughs> bridge it has constantly had to deal with all kinds of ethical problems, mostly just at the level of just cheating, cheating at cards, right? Right, and it's 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 complicated because in bridge, there a lot of what the, takes place at the table involves communicating to your partner, but there are legal ways of communicating and illegal ways, and you and your partner are not allowed to have agreements that they are not open to your opponents. And you're not allowed to give what's called unauthorized information. And so most of the cheating, uh, the big cheating scandals have involved uh, people finding ways to give unauthorized information to their partners. And, you know, paradoxically, some of the methods that they've used have involved the the kind of infrastructure that's been put in place to prevent cheating at the bridge table. So at major bridge terminals now, there's there's a screen that goes diagonally across the table so that you and one opponent are sitting on one side of the screen and a your partner and the other opponent are sitting on the other and because you can't see each other it's much harder to uh make deductions about things like hesitations and uh you to to convey unauthorized information that way but the the consequences that you have now the bidding is done by sliding a tray back and forth underneath that uh screen and there are ways of placing cards on the tray that uh, make it possible to convey unauthorized information to your partner. And the big, the big cheating scandal that I wrote about a few years ago uh, involved, uh, first in, it, it involved a, a pair of young Israeli players who had figured out ways to give each other information. And what the, the way they got caught was that uh, in British tournaments, they began videotaping um, entire games at the high at the high levels and people studied it and people had suspected this pair of cheating for a long time but using videotape that was on, readily available on YouTube they were able to actually figure out how they were doing it uh, which wasn't it was a very Sherlock Holmesy kind of uh, study and and it was done uh, uh, it was sort of crowdsourced they put it out to the bridge community and people eventually figured it out well so uh, these are things that I would not have understood but for the work of David Owen. But, uh, I mean, bridge is really different. It's almost built for cheating. I mean, poker, by contrast, you you know about your hand. You don't know any other information unless you can somehow or other 
pull it out of an unwilling and unwitting uh, opponent. Uh, but but bridge in bridge there is information. You do have a partner. The partner has an interest in knowing your information. Uh, you have an interest in knowing her information. Um, and yes, uh, you know by just little things like the way you put down a card or something like that, you could very easily design a system of intentional tells. Right, right. And you can't and you aren't allowed to do that. And if your partner does it, or if you just pick up something that your partner inadvertently. Re- revealed you're not allowed to use it so at least these uh there's a famous story about a, a great bridge player whose uh, partner hesitated uh before playing a card when it was his turn for the purpose of making the the person who played just before him think that he had the queen of something uh and was deciding whether or not to play it and uh he uh so he did, he didn't have it his partner had it and his hope was that the his partner would take the trick with that queen but the partner declined to win the trick, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, later he's asked, "Why didn't you take that trick?" And he said, "He said I thought you had the queen." Because mm-hmm. so he had he had detected his partner's attempt to cheat, and had neutralized it by uh, you know by pretending that 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 he didn't have the card that he actually had. So I don't, you know it's complicated, and uh, there there the the kinds of cheating that people do at the table are much harder to do online. Lots of bridge now is played online, but mm-hmm. there are even people who who cheat online when they're playing just recreationally with with strangers (laughs) for no money, for nothing, uh, just for, I guess, the joy of of cheating. I feel it will be a tragedy if this interview slips through my fingers and you have not said the words coughing doctors. Oh, right. I'm going to give you the opportunity right now to say the words coughing doctors. Uh, Yeah, the coughing doctors were Germans, I think, and they had had devised a system of coughing that that enabled them to convey information to each other. There was also, there was a... Lots of the in the history of in the history of bridge, lots of the cheaters have been Italians. Um, the back in the long ago, there was a the Italians dominated a, a team called the Italian Blue Team. They dominated international bridge, and there was a, a Texas rich guy who formed a team called the Dallas Aces to take them on. And they're still surviving members of the Dallas Aces. And they told me that they were all certain that the the Blue Team were cheating, but they didn't know how. But they decided they would you know beat them anyway. Uh, there was a couple of Italian players who were known as the race cars. Uh, it was Massimo Lanzarotti and Andrea Barati. Their, na- their na- last name sounded like the names of cars, and uh, they had a method of cheating. There were uh, pe- there were, there have been non-Italians too, but there's there's sort of an argument that people make that Italian card playing culture is sort of based on cheating because there's this game called Briscoli where the whole point is to convey you use things like movements of your eyes to convey information to your partner um but it's it's interesting too because bridge at the highest level it's not like uh you know it's not like or it's not like you know the world series of poker there's no money there are no there's no prize money uh people are playing for glory for titles and then nowadays they're playing for uh the best bridge players are they're they're called professionals. What they do is they they're, they work for uh, wealthy people who play them to play with them. So like Bill Gates uh, will have will play with a professional in a tournament. He'll play with somebody who's better, and the idea is that they'll not it'll be a learning experience, but they'll also uh, do better than they were than they would do if they were if Gates were playing with somebody who was at his own level, like like Warren Buffett. Right. 
Well, so, I mean, there was a time, and it is not this time, uh, Bridge had a heyday. I'm old enough to remember, I mean, Omar Sharif famously was a bridge player who said that the big mystery of his career is why he had wasted so much of his time acting when he could have been playing bridge. But every single newspaper had a bridge column, a regular bridge column on its feature pages. I mean, it was it was that big a deal. And there's a way in which it feels as though that universe is shrinking or maybe uh, you and the ladies that you play with uh, represent a kind of aging out of the, I mean, is this game, is it sort of viable as a really interesting uh, life-giving uh, enterprise? You know, it should be. There was a time in the United States that everybody played bridge. Right. And it was on TV. It was primetime television, Charles Gordon on TV. And it was an incredibly popular show. Uh, Sports Illustrated had a bridge column. And I think what you and I are exactly the same age, and I think what killed it was uh, birth control pills. Uh, people stopped. <laughs> people stopped playing bridge in college uh, when the sublimation was no longer necessary, and uh, it's it's kind of fallen off since then. And it's too bad because it's a, a tremendous game. You know, you go to a big bridge tournament, and there'll be a the regular division and the senior division, and they're they're they really don't need two divisions because everybody in the regular division could play as a senior too. Um, but Bridget itself is also uh, at fault. Back in during its heyday, it was it was a pretty simple it was a pretty simple game. And since then, it has it's at the highest levels. It's become incredibly complicated. Uh, what are known as bidding conventions, artificial bids that don't really say what they seem to say. By which Partners convey authorized information to each other, but it, you know, at the highest levels, the the best players in the world, they'll have their agreements will be hundreds of pages long, and they, you know, they they work and they work, and it's the complex uh, sort of bidding nuances meant to cover lots and lots of situations. And as a result, it's a it's always been a hard game to learn. Uh, you have to be willing. In order to be even mediocre at it, you have to be willing to be bad at it for a long time. Uh, but now that's even more the case. It's the sort of the, the harder, the more complicated it's gotten, the harder, the higher the uh, the bar has become to to become even bad at it. So, David Owen, let me ask you one more question about this. So, one possible way of dealing with a lot of the I mean, this doesn't address the doping thing, which I guess they're just going to have to pee more or something. But um, but the other kind of cheating is, like everything else, hand it over to our robot overlords you know, make the game more technological. And so there's a less that could go on in a kind of analog level with the position of your hand or, you know, what you're doing with you know, a pencil or whatever. Um, on the other hand... If bridge has an appeal, it would seem to me to be a little on the retro side. This, I think, was invented by some Vanderbilt on a cruise ship. And, I mean, if there's an appeal to bridge, it, it almost is that it, it comes at us from a different era. And, therefore, presumably, we don't want our robot overlords in their nasty, sterile Teflon phalanges all over it. Oh, definitely true. Uh, and, and the bridge players talk about that too they resist the idea of that because you while there's this possibility for cheating there's also something that they call table feel which is it's like in poker where you 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 sense authorized information from your opponents uh and and you make use of it and there's there's also this there really is a kind of an endurance uh aspect to it bridge tournaments last for days and people play multiple sessions and 
the times that I've played in them, you know, just paying attention after um, after even an hour is difficult. You can see why, you know, or people talk about caffeine as the the, the most important uh, performance enhancing drug in bridge, but. Um, you know, it's uh, it, it actually goes. It, the game goes way, way back to whist and to the predecessors of whist. There's, there's some kind of fascination of this trick-taking game. Edgar Allan Poe wrote about. It. He said it was greater, a greater game than chess. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, you know, it's, it's too bad that for whatever the reasons are, that it's a not as popular as it used to be, and b that there are people who can't seem to just view it as a game, treat it as a game, and and not uh, try to ruin everybody's life. Right. One of the great lines in your piece was that uh, among those serious bridge players, the only ones who appeared to have ever spent any time outdoors were the smokers. Right. Um, So anyway, there you go. It's a lonely life. (laughs) All right. Well, first of all, thank you for talking to us about this. Uh, My advice to the rest of you is read everything that David Owen writes, uh, most especially Where the Water Goes, Life and Death Along the Colorado River. David, thanks for doing this again. Oh, thanks, Colin. All right. It's always great to have you on. And so what we're going to do now is we're going to take a break. Uh, but uh, the final section will be me and anybody else who wants to call in. We're going to swing back to this idea of cancel culture. What do you do? I mean, we can make it very specific about Michael Jackson. I'm cool with that if you saw the first half of the documentary last night. But there are ways in which I'm also prepared to expand it. I'm going to give you the number right now. I would advise calling in so you get kind of in line, as it were. Not that there's anyone in line right now. 860 Two seven five seven two six six. Did you get that? Eight six zero two seven five seven two six six. Let's take a little break and we'll be back. All right, we're back. And I didn't write any credits for Kion Wolf to deliver, but Kion Wolf is on the board, and Jonathan McNichol was doing something on the board at another point. And Betsy Kaplan is the person who produced this show, and Carlos Mejia, who is uh, the Mejia Soros, he is our great uh, digital leader, was in here doing something else. I'm not really sure. These aren't very expertly delivered credits, as you're kind of you can kind of tell. But I'm still f- kind of feeling my way back into this job. Um, and I really haven't been around very much for about three weeks. And I'm sorry about my voice today, too. That's I don't, I don't even know which thing caused my voice to do what it's doing today, but uh, I'll be moving out of Kathleen Turner mode pretty soon. All right, so our number is 860-275-7266. We've got a couple of calls on the board. Let me just set this topic up one more time. So one of the things, I mean, if you watch this documentary, uh, one possible response, leaving Neverland being the HBO documentary. One possible and very likely response is, I got to get Michael Jackson out of my life. I mean, his music. Uh, and everything, but every response you have sounds a little bit like a Michael Jackson song. Uh, she's out of my life. So uh, I got to get Michael Jackson out of my life. Uh, and, and there's just no room for him. He is morally despicable. Um, and that certainly is part of a larger movement. It has been fashionable quite recently to start calling it cancel culture. So there's somebody you don't like, somebody whose behavior you object to. uh, So you want to remove him at minimum from your own personal consumption. uh, And usually more than that, usually you don't want to be at a wedding and hear somebody playing one of those songs if it's a musical person. Um, You don't think 
that person's books should be assigned in college courses uh, if it's a writer, et cetera. So I want to talk a little bit about this. I have my own thoughts about it, but they're also, like many of my thoughts, kind of inchoate. So uh, let's get going. We've got uh, Lydia from Ansonia. Once again, the number, 860-275-7266. Lydia, you're going to get us going. Hey, what's up, Colin? Um, I My whole thought is that the discussion does not need to be about Michael Jackson and whether or not he did it. The discussion needs to be about the parents. Why would you, if you're a parent, leave your child alone with somebody? Uh, you know, I mean, especially since he has had, uh, a, a, you know, what do you call it, a history of being um, accused of this. I think the parents need to be held accountable, point blank, end of discussion. And they well, need to be, I think they need to be prosecuted and, you know, their feet need to be held to the fire. I, you know, I, I don't totally disagree with you. Uh, and I'm, I'm assuming you saw the documentary. It sounds no, like. No, oh. I didn't. All right. But I so, mean, like this whole, you know, the whole time that he's been being accused, I don't know, over the last 10 or 20 years. That's what I thought. It's like, why would you do that if you're a parent? Right. So I know any parent that would leave a child with me and I'm a stranger, that's stupid. <laughs> All right, so um, let me react to that a little bit. Um, when you watch the documentary, it, it certainly is the case, and I was alluding to this with Hank. I mean, for me, there was this moment where one of the two, he's now a man, describes the fact that he and his family are visiting from Australia, and they wind up at Neverland, uh, and Michael has taken an incredible shine to this seven-year-old boy. And the family ultimately decides that they're going to continue their vacation, but they're going to go camping uh, up at the Grand Canyon, all of the rest of them, and there's uh, a sister and parents and grandparents, they're all just going to go there and they're going to do that, and they're going to leave their seven-year-old boy with Michael Jackson, whom they've basically just met. And and I, there was one part of me that wanted the filmmaker right there to say to that mother, and both of the mothers are prominently featured in this documentary, you know, how does that, that not make you a terrible mother? Who in the world would do that? I mean, it really is. We can talk about whether victim blaming is fair and blah, blah, blah. No, you're a terrible parent if you do that. You're a bad parent. And, and I don't think that I understand that we want to move away from victim blaming. But I also, also don't think that we want to move away from accountability. You're a rotten parent. <laughs> you have terrible judgment if you do something like that. It's inexcusable. So, yeah, Lydia's got a point there. But I don't think ultimately that's what we're talking about here today is whether certain parents are good or bad or more blameworthy or less. It seems to me not the question. Uh, to me, first of all, one of the larger question that I have is what do you do? What do the rest? Most of us were not molested by Michael Jackson. But almost all of us have some kind of relationship with Michael Jackson. He's practically in the tap water. So what do you do with that? And and how does that feed into this larger cancel culture where, I don't know, well, let me go to Mary Jane, and then I'll, I'll say a little bit more. But I'm, I'm less interested in crapping on these parents. You can do that, you know, on your own kind of one-to-one -one basis. I'm a little bit more interested in how do we read our own culture? And 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 it isn't just the parents, right? I mean, all of us probably did a little bit of moral tap dancing the more clear it became that there was smoke, if not fire, coming from this Michael Jackson story. This documentary makes it clear that there was probably fire where there was smoke. All right, here's Mary Jane in North Stonington. Hi, you're on the air. 
Oh, hello. Um, I'm a retired librarian, and we had to face this issue with books, and we had to come up with the idea that the moral life of the artist is irrelevant. If you have a writer like Rousseau, who was probably morally a terrible person, doesn't mean you don't read his work. And I know that that's theoretical, whereas this seems to be practical, but I think you have to do the same with uh, musicians. The work is what you're interested in, and you can't be going into their life and censoring your ideas by what somebody might have done. Or, or, That's what the librarians came up with, yeah. but we may need to change. Well, I don't know. I mean, let's talk about this for a second, because I think it's really interesting. And, um, I mean, uh, I think that you can you can begin to add considerations of what is known about their behavior at the time and how we interpret that behavior now into your evaluation of an author. But you don't want to pull that author out of the canon. And I think that's sort of what you're saying. Yes, that's what we had to come up with, trying to figure out how to deal with censorship. But this may be different. It's slightly different because it's pop art, you know. But I think that you have to judge the art and forget about the person. Right. So, but yeah, I mean, it's uh, theoretical. I, have you read I'm, I'm only asking you this because you're a librarian. Um, have you read uh, the Sigrid, Sigrid Nunez novel that won the National Book Award last year? It's called The Friend. Um, no, I'm sorry, I didn't. OK, I really recommend that you read it because it, there's a lot in there about this. It, it's it's okay. not the focus. It's not exactly the focus, but uh, there's a lot in there about that that question. And so I'm going to put it on hold. And I think Peter's going to be joining us from Stanford in just a second. 860-275-7266. 860-275-7266. And so the, the lead character of The Friend, the narrator, uh, is a writer uh, who is friends with another writer who has died. Uh, and But the, the, the woman who's narrating the novel, who's a writer and also a teacher, is constantly dealing with this with st- college students who go, well, N- Nabokov is this really creepy guy who I find disgusting and immoral. Why should I ha- Why are you making me read Nabokov? I don't want to read Nabokov. I don't like him as a person. Um, and this is very frustrating to her as a writer and teacher. And and I think that's kind of what we're bumping up against here, which is that, you know, we haven't worked out the gradations. We haven't worked out proportionality. I mean, there might be a pretty persuasive argument if the claims in this documentary hold together for just thinking, you know, most of the time you just shouldn't play Michael Jackson. You shouldn't listen to Michael Jackson. Uh, you know, and, and a much more persuasive argument in that direction than there would be about, say, Nabokov. But I'm not. I think we're still in the process of working this out. So, uh, here's Peter in Stanford. Hi, Peter. Uh, yes, I don't know. I know that uh, we have somebody who is uh, in in uh, the highest uh, office of the land, and that we are obsessing about. You know, Mr. Trump. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'd like to. Can- we'd like to cancel him. I was on the, the phone with. I think it was Betsy. Uh, and uh, she said, well, we can't cancel him because he's the president. He's part of history. We can't cancel this guy. I, I had no interest in him before he ran. Uh, I think I might have watched maybe 15 minutes of The, uh, of the Apprentice. And I really, he was a larger-than-life victim. And uh, I, know, I don't know how I can equate it to Michael Jackson because, well, maybe his tunes, he had good songwriters or something. But, uh, you know, th- this is the same moral uh, decline. And maybe it's just a, a, a sign of... Um, I don't know how you can equate the two, you know, because I guess with Michael Jackson, you have a choice. We don't have a choice with this president, but he's really uh, taken it so, 
so low levels, and um, and uh, yeah, there are some redeeming qualities with Michael Jackson's music. It's 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 catchy. It's uh, it's pop. You know, I <laughs> well, mean, that's, I wouldn't but, wanna... yeah, but that's the argument. And in other words, there's something seductive about catchy music. And so we are seduced by that music. We like that music. We get a lot of pleasure and enjoyment out of that music. And maybe there's something seductive about the uh, the raw, um, you know, uh, just the just the raw uh, of of Trump, the the the, the vitriol, the the um, over the top anger. Well, that no, comes out. I think earlier on when you were saying it's impossible to equate the two, you had it right. You can't really equate the two. I mean, the question that we're really wrestling with here is, yes, there are ways in which the music of Michael Jackson give us gives us pleasure and has defined. I mean, Matt, remember, at his peak, he was by far the biggest star in the world. There was nobody close at that moment. And there's probably nobody right now who's as big a star as Michael Jackson was at his peak. So, I mean, scrubbing him from the pop music canon is going to be a really difficult thing to do. And I mean, just because of, of ubiquity and, and because of the enormity of the shadow that he cast at that time. But within that, within that question sits a smaller question, which is just sort of, you know, for each of us, I don't know, can you sit there and listen to I'll Be There, which I always thought was kind of a beautiful song, um, and which he sang in a very special way. Um, I mean, what do you do with that now? I mean, I feel as though I would feel a little strange singing along with it. Um, uh, so, I mean, we're going to have to take, in, and this is, I think, as big a, a, a mountain as we've had to climb in this regard. We're going to have to take this guy who appears to have been absolutely depraved if, if all of these allegations kind of hang together and, and figure out what to do with the enormous profile that he had uh, in the popular culture, not only of America, but the world. And it's going to be that easy. Uh, all right. So we're done for the day. Uh, we're going to be back. Oh, we're going to do our Joyce Maynard conversation uh, again tomorrow. If you missed that the first time, Joyce Maynard, whatever you might imagine her to be, she's more than that. And she's a lively conversationalist. We've got all kinds of other surprises waiting for you later this week. <laughs>